You're listening to Code Red with Secure America Now, the largest national security grassroots army. Welcome to the Code Red podcast. I am Alan Roth, president of Secure America Now. Our special guest today is Melanie Phillips. Melanie is the author of several important books on current affairs, and she is a columnist at the Times in the United Kingdom. On the web, her material can be accessed at melaniephillips.substack.com. Melanie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Alan. Pleasure to be here and to speak to you. Melanie, since the publication of your 2010 book, The World Turned Upside Down, the Western world seems to be in a bottomless tailspin. One aspect of this is an unimaginable, to borrow your phrase, tsunami of anti-Semitism, triggered by the recent conflict between Israel and Hamas. Help us understand what is going on and why progressives who supported Israel are now joining the ranks with Islamic radicals in open opposition to Israel. Well, you ask a big question, to put it mildly, and it's been my view for uh, many years that attitudes to Israel and the Jewish people um, are intimately connected with attitudes to the West in general. And by and large, those who are fundamentally hostile to the idea of Zionism and uh, who are not just critical of Israel but demonize it in order to delegitimize it and who would prefer it not to exist, those people can almost be guaranteed to be on the side of those who want to destroy the West, who perceive that the West America, capitalism, Britain, were conceived in original sin and have to expiate themselves endlessly uh, for the crimes of anti-black racism, of colonialism, of imperialism and all the rest of it. Um, now, I think it's no coincidence that at the root of Western culture that is thus being demonized in this way uh, and has been, I think, for several decades, um, at the very root of that culture in the West lies Christianity, and at the very root of Christianity lies Judaism. And it is basically the Jewish moral codes uh, uh, mediated through Christianity as the bedrock values of the West, uh, which are essentially under assault by the uh, progressive uh, ideologies, uh, the various isms uh, by which uh, progressives seek to dismantle traditional normative values of family, of nation, of culture, even of gender. And it's no surprise, therefore, that Israel, the homeland of the Jewish people, uh, finds itself in the crosshairs. Now, more specifically, one of the um, offshoots of this ideology, this uh, uh, animus against the Western nation state, is the animus against Israel, which is perceived entirely wrongly. Uh, as the outpost of Western white colonialism. This is, of course, a great irony, since the majority of Jews in Israel are, in fact, brown-skinned, 
having descended from people who were themselves ethnically cleansed from Arab countries. And 20% of Israel is Arab. Uh, so the majority of Israel is actually brown skin. But nevertheless, uh, because it is seen to be powerful and because it adheres to uh, Western values of democracy and freedom and human rights, uh, it is perceived as on the side of and part of the oppressive white Western ruling class, which is inescapably colonialist and imperialist. And so its, its activities are judged in that way. Now, one of the things that has bedeviled this whole uh, issue of Israel and Jews over many years is the insistence by the progressive class that in this demonization of Israel, they are not being anti-Jew, they're not being anti-Semitic because they draw a complete distinction between Zionism stroke Israel on the one hand and the Jewish people on the other. What they have in their minds is that anti-Semitism is a kind of, uh, they frame anti-Semitism through the prism, as it were, of Nazism, which was racially based against all Jewish people. What they don't understand or refuse to understand is that the essence of their animus against Israel is anti-Jew, anti-Judaism, even though they themselves may not be. Uh, because everything uh, that they believe about Israel is not only false, but is uh, a lie designed to delegitimize and demonize it. And there is simply no other country or culture or cause or people in the world which is subjected to this particular obsessional, malevolent series of falsehoods which invert reality. And it's no coincidence that precisely the same set of obsessional, malevolent double standards is the essence of traditional, if you like, anti-Semitism going back through the centuries. It's the same thing. Uh, you know, the animus against Jews, the anti-Semitism uh, of the world was once uh, theologically based in Christianity. It was then racially based through uh, Nazism. And now it's based um, against, its, it, its target uh, is the collective Jew uh, in the state of Israel. So these are complicated issues. They, are all, they all interconnect. I was going to say intersect, but intersectionality is another matter altogether. Um, and they have achieved particular virulence because under the banner of intersectionality, uh, in which uh, under the voguish uh, orthodoxy of the age, uh, if you are, if you are um, against anti-racism, if you are against racism, uh, you have to be uh, against uh, heterosexuality and you have to be against Israel. It's, it's all those things together. Um, that this has, has put kind of rocket fuel uh, behind the animus against Israel and against the Jews. And so, uh, to cut a very long story a little bit shorter, um, what we've seen in the last few weeks, which we can talk about uh, in particular, is uh, an explosion of all those things uh, which have come together under the, uh, under the impetus uh, of a series of events uh, in the Middle East, uh, which as ever have acted as a kind of fig leaf for a much deeper and much more problematic phenomenon uh, which is an assault upon the Jewish people as a whole, and that itself is part of a wider phenomenon, which is the assault upon the West in general. You have 
written recently. Um, I'm going to quote from an article that appeared uh, on June 4th. The tsunami of anti-Semitism over the past few weeks is the work of an axis of anti-Jewish evil that spans continents and has the whole Jewish world in its crosshairs in both Israel and the diaspora. It's the product of an alliance between the Islamic world and the Western left. What we have seen in the United States, we, you experienced in the United Kingdom with the legitimization of an anti-Israel slash anti-Semitic forces. You, you experienced it with the rise of Jeremy Corbyn when he took over the Labour Party. And now the Democratic Party in the United States has in fact elevated outright very vocal anti-Semites like Elon Omar, where a year or two ago they would criticize Omar for her outright anti-Semitism, now she has been elevated to positions of honor and authority within the government and within the Democratic Party. Um, so we have this, as, as you were explaining, seeing, there is a coming together of various evil forces, I'll use that term, um, and uh, it, it goes beyond Israel and the Jews, but the Jews seem to be the special target. And um, how are the Western societies responding to this direct assault, both on their values and on their Jewish citizens? Well, again, a uh, rather a number of uh, large number of very large questions there. Um, uh, the um, one has to ask for for a start why there is this unholy alliance between the left and um, the Islamists, and uh, the uh, the immediate answer, which is pretty obvious, is that both are united in a common cause to destroy the West. Now, clearly, uh, Western progressives, Western liberals uh, are very libertarian and have a completely different idea of what the perfect society that they want would look like from the Islamists. I mean, it's diametrically opposite, but they are happy to make common cause uh, against the people who uh, they want to destroy. So that, on the base, on that, on, 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 on the face of it, that is an obvious reason why they make common cause. But there is a worse, um, a, a much worse uh, element to this on the left uh, in liberal progressive circles. Um, and it's really, it's a noxious idea which is really very widely shared, uh, which is that if capitalism is the problem, which so many think it is, the Jews are behind capitalism. That's what they think. Um, they think that Jews run the money markets. They think that Jews run the world. They think that Jews are behind the foreign policy decisions of the most powerful country in the West, in the world, America. Now, you say Jeremy Corbyn, um, and as we all know, when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the British Labour Party, um, under him, the Labour Party veered to the hard left. 
and that was a great trauma. And under that umbrella, um, uh, uh, people were emboldened to come out from under their stone with the most appallingly uh, a rank uh, anti-Israel and anti-Jewish animus. And the anti-Jewish stuff became ever more unambiguous under his, as it were, protective umbrella. But the idea that this started with Jeremy Corbyn is quite wrong, quite wrong. I remember um, uh, being told uh, during, uh, I think it was during the Lebanon war. Um, no, it, it was it was subsequently, I've, I've forgotten uh, quite when it was. But I remember being told by, by um, uh, some army bigwig uh, in, in London um, that uh, uh, the American president had Ariel Sharon's hand up his back. Um, and oh, this was over the Iraq war. That was it. It was the Iraq war was being blamed on our on on Israel. And uh, it was, you know, President Bush has Ariel Sharon's hand up his back. This idea that it was uh, caused by, it was caused by um, uh, an alliance uh, between Jerusalem and Washington, D.C., and that uh, Washington was being, that, that the White House was being manipulated by Israel. This was extremely common, and that was in the Iraq War. And uh, going back much further, I mean, I was first alerted to the obnoxious, uh, obsession on the left with Israel uh, in the Lebanon war in 1982. Uh, I was working at the Guardian at the time in the belly of the liberal beast as it were and I came up against this uh, this um, absolute double standard. Um, the uh, the uh, father of the present uh, President Assad of Syria uh, was conducting uh, 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 operations against uh, his Muslim Brotherhood foes in Syria and uh, there was one occasion where he caused uh, a very large number of them, between, I don't know, between 10 and 40,000 uh, to be killed over the course of a few days. And that really re received virtually no publicity or no coverage. But Israel's defensive actions against the uh, PLO in Lebanon uh, were, were, were the subject of the most appalling vitriol. And that was when, it was during that war that I first heard this notion explicitly expressed in London to me of the Jew as, as Nazi. Ariel Sharon was a Nazi. Israel was a Nazi state. So this goes back a very long way. And there are many reasons uh, for this um, uh, to do with, you know, the obsession with colonialism, the, the, the Marxist view that uh, uh, anyone with the Marxist view that power uh, is defined in terms of economics and military, and therefore Israel fill, fits that bill, and so on and so forth. Um, but um, the alliance between um, the left and uh, the Islamists, um, as you can see in America, um, has had a number of effects. And both in Britain and America, our ruling class has been discombobulated and is running scared uh, from um, uh, Islamism. Uh, in Britain, this has been uh, a very, very noticeable. I wrote about this, uh, was it 2006? I published my book, Londonistan, about the Islamization of Britain and how Britain's elites, uh, it's not just its politicians, but its judiciary and its police officers and other cultural leaders were basically giving in to the blackmail and the threats uh, of radical Islam, which was intent on basically conquering Britain 
not so much by violence, because the Islamists understand that Britain doesn't respond well to violence at all, um, but by sort of cultural creep. Um, and uh, this was something the British state could not deal with, uh, because it, uh, partly because it was frightened of dealing with it, it was frightened of the violence that it might therefore unleash in its view, but also because it was completely discombobulated by the obsession on the left that you cannot, um, you cannot uh, distinguish, you cannot discriminate between cultures, you cannot say one culture is worse than another. And when it comes to the developing world, any criticism of that developing culture is uh, considered to be racist or xenophobic. And then you had this great movement to um, uh, create this, this uh, thought crime of Islamophobia. Now, you know, anti-Muslim prejudice is bad. There are people who are prejudiced against Muslims in the way that they're prejudiced against Sikhs and Hindus and Jews and anyone that's not like them. But Islamophobia was not set up for them. It was set up in order to demonize and criminalize any criticism of the Muslim world at all. And so the combination of all these things, the obsession with anti-racism, which meant the developing world, people of browns, black skins couldn't be criticized, the obsession with Islamophobia. Um, this is why you have in, in America, uh, a democratic party, which if they're not actually themselves adherents to these ideologies are running scared from them. They are paralyzed because if they were to criticize, you know, Ilan Omar and, and, and all the others in the squad and, and, and all the others uh, who are uh, giving vent to these anti-Western, anti-white, anti-Jew uh, sentiments, um, they might themselves, they would be pilloried uh, in, uh, in, 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 in the uh, areas which matter to them, like the media, and the artistic and cultural world, they'd be pilloried as racist and their social and professional lives would be at an end. And that is true. It is, you know, that's what happens to you if you speak out against these things. And so it silences good people who understand what's going on but are too frightened to act. And it has colonized the minds of many others who really don't understand what they are signing up to. Because unfortunately, your education system in America and the education system in Britain has for decades been taken over by so-called educationists who have transformed education from being the transmission of a culture from one generation down to the next into a process by which the next generation is taught that the culture that they are inheriting is fundamentally evil. And you know, all of this is chickens coming home to roost, I'm afraid, big time. You have been critical of the Jewish community or the leadership of the Jewish community's response to this overt anti-Semitism. Here in the United States, during the shooting war between Hamas and the state of Israel, uh, Chuck Schumer, who is Jewish, who proudly identified as being Jewish his entire political career, did not say a single word. He's senator 
from the state of New York and majority leader of the United States Senate. He did not say a word in defense of the state of Israel. He silenced himself. And um, from your criticism of both the elites in our societies, but also uh, specifically of the Jews, can you explain what the Jews hope to accomplish? And here I'm talking about Jewish leadership. There have been uh, grassroots Jews who have spoken up. Um, what do they hope to accomplish by this silence? The response of the Jewish leadership, I think in both Britain and America has been woeful. And there are similarities and differences. Um, although the contexts are different and the cultures are very different, the similarity is that uh, in both cases, the Jewish leadership is too frightened to say what it needs to say. And also too many of the Jewish leadership, both in America and Britain have signed up to or have absorbed much of the lies and the falsehoods about Israel, which have paralyzed them and means that they can't actually or won't uh, tell these to tell the truths that need to be told uh, about the Middle East. Um, I mean, I can mainly, obviously, mainly talk about uh, the British Jewish community, um, but, um, you know, under Jeremy, when Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, the British Jewish community suddenly found its voice and started to um, leap up and down in public. And everybody was amazed because they'd never say anything normally uh, to frighten anybody. And suddenly they were coming up very strongly. But in my view, um, this was, although it was very necessary, it was also uh, very disturbing to see that the reason they were doing it was because it was a very soft target. Jeremy Corbyn was by any standards, utterly extreme. The British people as a whole wouldn't tolerate him for, for five seconds together. They understood that he was a traitor to the country. That's how they saw him. So it was kind of easy to stand up against someone like him. I'm not for a moment saying it was an easy task to, uh, to, to, uh, to get rid of him, uh, but uh, it was easy from the point of view of the Jewish community to stand up and say this because they weren't gonna get so much flack, but they are very, very concerned uh, not to rock the boat. Uh, uh, and they don't uh, stand up as they should in support of Israel. Uh, in public, by, what, by which I mean this. They certainly do complain uh, when, for example, the BBC uh, indulges in its egregious uh, anti-Israel uh, bias, uh, but they don't, as a leadership, stand up and say what they should be saying, which is, for example, uh, that Israel's behavior is always in accordance with international law, that its so-called illegal occupation of the so-called West Bank is not illegal at all, that the Jewish people are the only extant indigenous people of the land of Israel, that they are the only people to whom uh, there is, for whom there is any legal, historical or moral justification to the land, and that they're entitled to all of the land, even though they don't necessarily want all of the land, that they were not just promised, but given a legally binding undertaking in the early years of the 20th century uh, by the international community led by Great Britain. Now they should be saying that, they don't say a word of any of that. Um, and they are nervous because, and understandably so, uh, because you know they would provoke the most appalling uproar against themselves. 
Um, and uh, in addition to being nervous, a lot of them just don't know the background. They don't know the history. Another thing they should be saying, both the British Jewish leadership and the leadership, the British and the Jewish leadership in America, they should be telling the British public and the American public what they never hear, which is precisely what the Palestinian Authority says about Jews, not just about Israel. I mean, you know, Hamas is one thing, but the Palestinian Authority is supposedly the body with which uh, the United States and uh, various United States administrations and the British government uh, wish to negotiate uh, a two-state solution on the basis that that Palestinian Authority is entitled to, uh, that, the, that the Palestinians are entitled to a state of their own, and the Palestinian Authority led by Mahmoud Abbas, uh, uh, who is a, is a statesman in waiting, and they're the people who we would all like to see run this state. Well, what people don't understand is that the Palestinian Authority, no less than the Hamas, puts out rank um, anti-Jewish stuff redolent of medieval Christian pogroms, redolent of Nazi libels against the Jewish people, based in Islamic theology. Um, and uh, this goes on week after week, month after month, year after year, with which they poison the minds of their children, who are now grown up and have children of their own, and so on and so forth, um, and are pledged to destroy Israel. Now, this is all available. Um, okay, you need translations, but it's all available. The Jewish leadership won't utter a word of this. Now, you know, so when it comes to like the recent hostilities uh, between Israel and, 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 uh, and, the, and the Hamas in Gaza, again, there were things which needed to be said loud and clear. Uh, for example, it needed to be said loud and clear that the canard, and it was a canard that these hostilities started uh, because uh, the Israelis took condign action uh, against uh, Muslim worshippers uh, at the Alaska at the Al Aqsa Mosque. That should have been, uh, you know, the, the the Jewish leadership of both Britain and America should have stood up at that point and said, "This is a complete lie and fabrication. Uh, this is, you know, this is not how it started." Uh, you know, uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque has been used as a weapons depository uh, from which, uh, uh, where rocket, where, where uh, Molotov cocktails and, and, and large stones have been assembled with which so-called worshippers at the mosque uh, are throwing them down to try to murder Jewish worshippers below and to kill Israeli police officers. And that itself follows incitement by Mahmoud Abbas's people in the Palestinian Authority. And it's all to do with the fact that Mahmoud Abbas canceled the Palestinian Authority election so that uh, because he thought the Hamas would win it. And so the Hamas have taken the opportunity to show that they can actually do the job that everyone in the Palestinian uh, uh, areas wants them to do, which is to destroy Israel. That's what should have been said. So, but you know, in America and in Israel and in Britain, the Jewish leadership is far, far too timid. Worse still, in Britain, I don't know whether this is true in America, but in Britain, um, for some years now, the Jewish leadership in Britain has sought strenuously to equate Islamophobia with anti-Semitism. Now, this is really terrible because 
you know, as I've said before, prejudice against Muslims is bad, real prejudice, but Islamophobia is a term designed to shut down necessary and legitimate criticism of the Islamic world, amongst which should be, uh, amongst which criticism should be an ex a, a, a focus on the anti-Semitism that pours out of the Muslim world all the time. Now, if you point to that, if you point to Muslim anti-Semitism and to Palestinian anti-Semitism, and I know this from my own experience, you're accused immediately of being an Islamophobe. And I'm accused of being an Islamophobe by the British Jewish leadership for saying this. Now, this is the insanity uh, that the British Jewish leadership has got itself into through a kind of preemptive cultural cringe uh, in which they think that they can, they can, they can uh, extend their influence and keep themselves safe by, by appeasing these forces. And you ask, I think, who asked, I think, uh, what they intend to gain by this. And what, they, uh, what they're frightened of is losing influence. They're frightened of being excluded from the councils of the great and the mighty and the government and other cultural leaders. Um, they're frightened of the social exclusion uh, and demonization that comes with telling the truth about all these things. And uh, be behind the fear of being excluded lies something which I think plays very differently in Britain and America in terms of the Jewish communities in both countries. But basically it's the same thing. It's this uh, perennial um, fantasy that the diaspora Jew has that if he, if he or she only does this or that, then they will fit in and be accepted and they will never again be held out to be different and they will therefore never again be the victims of prejudice. And this is the great fallacy of the diaspora Jew, that that can never be the case, that your acceptance in the diaspora, I'm afraid to say, history bitterly teaches us this lesson over and over again, and the Jewish communities in the diaspora never seem to learn it, that if you fit in, it's always conditional on something. And that's a lesson that the Jews of the diaspora refuse to learn. And consequently, once again, in the last few weeks, we have found them in Britain and America saying, what's going on here? What can explain this? tsunami of anti-Semitism. Where does it come from and why are they picking on us? We've done nothing wrong. Israel has got nothing to do with us. That's the attitude of the diaspora Jew and quite honestly I mean it's a recipe for continuing disaster. Do you see any way out of this disaster? What needs to be done? Well, what needs to be done is courage. Uh, what's needed is, is courage. And what needs to be done is that Jewish leaders have to show some leadership. And that is not just the case with Jewish leaders. I mean, this is the case in the West as well. The West is under assault from within, uh, from people who wish to destroy it, to destroy its culture, to destroy the nation state, to destroy the moral codes that have underpinned the West for generations. And it can be fought, it can be repressed and rejected, but for that you have to have proper leadership. And proper leadership means that you have to, first of all, educate people into what's happening. Many, many people have no idea what's happening. All these people taking the knee in Britain and in America, 
you know, and there is, I've lost count of the number of decent people who are doing this, who believe that by taking the knee, they are being anti-racist. And they really have no idea that by taking the knee, they are actually expressing support for a profoundly racially bigoted way of thinking, which seeks to tar um, all white people with the original sin of white privilege, colonialism, imperialism, and so on. I mean, you can hardly have a more graphic demonstration of racial bigotry than to tar an entire ethnic group on the basis of the color of their skin. Uh, but, you know, again, where is the leadership that in, 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 in the secular world, in the political world, the cultural world that stands up and says this? Everyone's running for cover. Everyone's busily, you know, trying to show they're more anti-racist than the next person for fear of what can happen to them socially, professionally, uh, if they don't. So yes, the thing can be turned around, but it needs leadership. It needs leadership in the wider community. It needs, it needs leadership in the Jewish community. Melanie Phillips, uh, once again, I want to thank you for sharing your incisive uh, understanding of what is going on in these very troubled times. And in terms of courage, you have done more in terms of specifically um, putting the British media on notice or exposing them for their biases. Um, and uh, I'm sure that you get all sorts of nasty tweets against you and emails and Lord knows what else um, uh, for standing up for what uh, we used to call Western values uh, that our elites have abandoned. So I, again, I wanna thank you for sharing your points of view. I want to remind people, and we will do this on the web as well, um, that they can read Melanie, see her videos, etc., at melaniephillips.substack.com. Go visit, uh, sign up, um, become a follower of Melanie. She's a very rare asset for values that we all share. Well, thank you very much, Melanie, for spending some time with us. Thank you very much, Alan, for your kind words. Really, uh, it's the very least I can do is to keep writing in the way that I do. And thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for listening to the Code Red Podcast. Be sure to click subscribe to stay up to date and be the first to hear about our future podcast. You can also find and subscribe to the Code Red Podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Google Play, and YouTube.